Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. I'm Mark Riley. Thanks for being here. It's time now to take a long, hard look at the filibuster, that parlor trick used by the minority in the United States Senate to thwart the will of the majority. At issue is the thrice-rejected voting rights legislation that Republicans are using to suppress the vote in cases where they feel the balloting will not go their way. In previous episodes, I've talked about the feeling that many, including me, had that civil and voting rights legislation passed back in the 1960s would keep the vote inviolate. How wrong I was. A combination of court decisions and legislative chicanery have put the right to vote for millions of Americans at great risk. And every time the Senate looks to open the process up to those who have been historically disenfranchised, the Republicans vote as a block to kill that effort. It's true that a pair of Democrats, Manchin of West Virginia and Cinema of Arizona, have played roles in preventing voting rights legislation from becoming law. But the filibuster, which mandates 60 votes in the Senate to move bills toward a final vote, that is the obstacle. I'm going to assume most people know the tactic's sorry history of being used to thwart civil rights legislation back in the day. So here we are, facing a united party that thinks the only votes that should count are those who vote for them. There's really only one answer to this. It's to kill the filibuster once and for all, at least for voting rights legislation. For reading... For reasons known best to them, Cinema and Manchin have drawn a red line in the sand about the filibuster. They seem not to know that the grand Republican plan is to push state legislatures to enact voter suppression measures and they'll use the filibuster to make it impossible for the majority to get voting rights done. President Joe Biden has been criticized for not putting the power of his office to work to pass voting rights legislation. He now says he'll support ending the filibuster to get the voting rights bill done, but not until after his spending priorities are dealt with. This is disappointing because on a macro level, voter suppression is nothing less than an attack on American democracy, pure and simple. That the Republican Party would stand as one against a bill that would make it easier for more Americans to register and vote speaks clearly to their fear that such a bill would force them to act like a actual legislators and not the sad, sorry naysayers they've become since the ascension of Donald Trump. I've been hearing a lot lately about attacks on American democracy since the January 6th attack on the Capitol. If Democrats believe their GOP colleagues in Congress are no better than they've shown, they have a moral obligation to at least destroy the filibuster for voting rights. They must also explain to the American people that it's fear, fear of a diverse, compassionate nation that they and their deep-pocketed corporatists can no longer control with money. That's truly what's at stake here. I have to say, Joe Biden needs to show his base that he can chew gum and walk at the same time. Yes, the nation needs his infrastructure and safety net bills. There is no doubt about that. Yet putting voting rights third in the line does little for his standing in black America, the very people the Republicans want to disenfranchise, and the very people that helped mightily in putting him in office in the first place. 
Their public rationale for opposing the right to vote, because that's what they're doing, is tepid, it's weak, and it's self-serving. This is precisely why I said a while back that the GOP as currently constructed needs to be destroyed. That wouldn't be with riots like January 6th, but with the ballot and with smart, progressive policies that benefit the wide majority of hard-working Americans. Democrats in Congress and the White House are saying negotiations on the president's spending plans are at what they call a sensitive phase. At issue is who gets taxed to pay for infrastructure and safety net provisions. Two holdout Democrats, but especially Senator Christian Sinema of Arizona, rejected Biden's call for increased taxes on people making more than $400,000 a year. Now, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon has come up with a new plan that would raise taxes on the richest people in America, the billionaires. There are about 700 of them. That's right, 700 of them in the country. And that's a lot of money concentrated in very few hands. It should be painfully obvious to most people who can count that Biden's spending plans could not be achieved by taxing billionaires alone. Yet this proposal shows just how far some are willing to pare down attempts to deal with the inequalities made stark by the coronavirus pandemic. This tactical change is also about trying to minimize political blowback from the much larger group of people making a half million dollars and more. Another, and by the way, a lot of those people who are making a half million dollars or more have no idea what it's like to be a working poor person in pandemic America. Now, another very real question that has to be asked here is whether a big part of billionaires' wealth will not end up being shielded by existing loopholes should they pass a tax on billionaires. Remember, that's how they keep their money now. And by the way, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have gotten rich during the course of the pandemic. That and the fact that the plan wouldn't involve increases in the corporate tax rate has summoned the progressive wing of the party upset. Keep in mind, the components that would be cut down in this plan would not be infrastructure, but the reconciliation bill that would establish new programs to address the plight of poor and working people. Can a new billionaire's tax work? Can it really help the people Biden's spending plan intends? Can it get the support needed to pass congressional muster? We'll see. Up next, many people have talked about the threat climate change poses to national security, including this podcast. Now, a bunch of agencies in the federal government are saying the threat is real and the threat is now. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Thanks for staying with us. As mentioned earlier, we've talked about the threat climate change poses to national security in the past. So have a lot of other people, including former President Barack Obama. Now, several defense and intelligence agencies have presented to President Biden the stark reality of that threat. 
The agencies involved in these assessments reads like a who's who in the administration. They include the Departments of Homeland Security and Defense, the National Security Council, and the Director of National Intelligence. It's the first time they've worked together on assessments like this, and the issues are worldwide. Among their uh, collective concerns, heat and drought, creating food and water shortages that in turn could lead to unrest. Then there's immigration, which has both Western Europe and the U.S. at wit's end. As climate change worsens, people could be displaced in areas like Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and South Asia. One report puts the possible number of displaced persons as high as 143 million. And guess where a lot of them will be headed? Western Europe and the U.S. That's already confounded governments of rich nations eager to limit the number of migrants to their borders. If that weren't bad enough, the financial people are also starting to warn of the consequences of unchecked climate change. Notice, they're not talking about unchecked immigration, they're talking about unchecked climate change. They say the U.S. economy is threatened. A look back at natural disasters this year alone should confirm that in the minds of the hardest climate deniers and the most hard-headed climate deniers. The question now is not that these climate change byproducts exist, it's what to do about them. The COP26 climate summit is coming up very soon, and few people think that much will be accomplished from it. The most confounding thing is that so many commitments are so far down the road. I don't know about you, but when they talk about 2050 for carbon neutrality, I'll be a year short of 100 by that time. Usually, threats to national security are a top priority for the so-called developed world. The risk assessments of not acting are now coming from the national security apparatus of this country, not a bunch of tree huggers, as people used to be called not that long ago. I'm not sure they'll add a great deal of urgency to those climate talks. All too often, some nations point the finger of climate change blame at the usual suspects while patting themselves on the back about what they're doing. We've seen people, from Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth to Greta Thunberg, saying, this is not good enough. When will people actually start to listen and act? You know, it's something that if you think about it, and I'm not sure that many people actually do, but if you think about it, it's something that has to happen. Human beings must change or we are putting the planet at great risk. Not an individual country, a planet. And you see, when it comes down to these kinds of changes that need to be made, it always comes up with a financial question, a financial issue about how much it's going to cost. I totally understand that. You know, people don't always have a lot of money to throw around. But the fact of the matter is, small incremental steps are the way to start the process. And the fact is, too many people are not being encouraged enough, encouraged by their governments, I might add, to take those small, smart, incremental steps. 
And a lot of it has to do with little things. Now, what happens is when you start talking about these small incremental things, the climate deniers will look at you and say, well, that's not going to do anything. What difference does it make if you drive an electric car? There's not enough charge points. You know, keep, keep your gas guzzler. Keep your fossil fuel burning motor vehicle. It's fine. That's what people have done since the advent of motive, since the end of the horse-drawn carriage. Well, folks, there has to be a change. And, you know, going back to pre-industrial America, for example, as a baseline, or pre-industrial Western Europe, as a baseline for how, how much you need to change is a recipe for disaster. And all these people that are talking this mess know it already. They know it. That's why Queen Elizabeth said what she said, which is that, you know, people just talk. Greta Thunberg, same thing. She used a different set of words. She said, blah, blah, blah. But what she's saying is people just talk. And what happens at these COP summits and the Paris Accords and all these other uh, uh, conferences about climate change is that people say, well, we're doing a great job. It's not our fault. It's India's fault or it's China's fault or it's this fault or that fault or the other fault without ever saying that they have any role whatsoever to play in helping the Chinese or just as importantly, helping people in sub-Saharan Africa where there are, by the way, several climate change success stories. But do you hear about them here? No. Do you hear about any kind of encouragement, financial or otherwise, that the rich nations are doing to encourage people to fight climate change? No. All they know is they don't want all those people coming here. No matter what else they say, that they do not want. But you know what? Things keep up like this. Not only will they have very little choice, but people will come to America and Western Europe and suddenly realize that heat and drought and flooding and all these other fires, natural disasters that they think they were running from, they'll be running to. And finally, how to construct a news story without any facts. Don't think it happens? Keep on listening. This is The Intersection. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your boy, Fab Five Freddy, and I'm live and direct, home in Harlem, tuned in to my main man, dropping all his great information. Mark Riley, The Intersection is live, y'all. Tune in. Welcome back to The Intersection. As a retired journalist, I am constantly amazed and somewhat saddened by what passes for news stories these days. Time after time, I see alleged items in newspapers and news websites that would have had editors suggesting their authors might do well to change jobs and maybe sell insurance. The latest one was an item in a New York City newspaper by way of a UK paper, because they're both owned by the same people. The headline? Plane passenger sparks fury online after inconsiderate act photo emerges. That's right. A woman who draped her hair over an airplane seat, an act that may or may not be considered inconsiderate. 
But is it considered news? I don't think so. But it was in a newspaper, for God's sake. A couple of newspapers. The story itself says the flight, passenger, and destination were all unclear. That ticks three out of the five boxes that they've always told us were prerequisites to actually creating a news story. The who, the why, the where, it's not in this story. Doesn't matter. And it's really starting to spread. Instead of any information, we get the fact that Twitter followers all reacted to the photo and it went viral. And if you think this is an isolated journalistic faux pas, think again. It happens so often, like a bad disco DJ, anyone can do it. Just take a tweet, Facebook or Instagram post, grab a few comments, and there you have it. A story. How people in media fail to call this nonsense out is utterly beyond me. Another journalistic outrage, and I see this all the time, and it makes me, it makes me want to throw something. They take a letter to the editor, and they call it news. You might not believe it, but I see it day after day after day. So much so that sometimes I want to call the office of the newspaper that does this and say, what is wrong with you people? Don't you have any training, for God's sake? I'm sure newspapers and other media who take these shortcuts will tell you this is what the modern-day reader-slash-listener wants to hear about. That it's not foolishness masquerading as news, it's what the people want. What a load of crap. How do these outlets call themselves news and do this? I do not understand. You know, now, again, I'm no kid, and maybe kids do want to see this as news. I, I, it boggles the mind, and not at all, I'm not at all certain that people are just coming up with feeble, tepid alibis. In fact, it's no wonder that the public have lost trust in media. I guess, I guess if you can keep your head above water doing this, that's what people will continue to do, and that's what people will continue to get. To me... There's no excuse for shoddy journalism. Once, a long, long time ago, I auditioned for a writing job at a major New York radio station. It's an all-news station. I was a green kid, and the editor who gave me their news writing test knew it. I wrote, and I sweated for an hour, then gave him the test. About 20 minutes later, he gave me the test back. It had red marks all over it. I thought to myself, okay, well, nice try. The editor said to me, look closely at the corrections I made. You know, we don't get many kids coming in off the street like you who can pass our writer's test. When do you want to start? I've always been proud of that. And maybe that's why I have little tolerance for media sloth. And speaking of sloth, the 45th president announced he's starting a new social media network similar to Twitter. It will supposedly be one component of what Donald Trump says is a new media empire. It's called True Social, and its purpose is to fight back against the tyranny of big tech. His words, not mine. Many of those big tech companies have denied him access. Unlike them, True Social says it won't censor user content unless, of course, 
a user disrespects the site or its leadership. To say True Social, which hasn't actually launched yet, hasn't even had a good pre-debut, would be the height of understatement. Hackers managed to gain access to a private version of the network. They created fake accounts for Trump, his minion Steve Bannon, and Twitter's chief executive Jack Dorsey, among others. They talked to the New York Times and asserted their affiliation with Anonymous, the online group dedicated, in its own words, to fighting an online war against hate. While I might not use the image of a defecating pig or use a lot of obscenity to make my point, I have to say I'm in agreement with their sentiments. Absolutely in agreement with their sentiments. Truth Social will hopefully be a resounding failure, just as his founder was a failure as president. We've discussed why he needs to have some platform to continue his pointless assertion that he won last year's election. He also wants to maintain his stranglehold on the Republican Party. On top of that, he may feel the walls of several investigations closing in on him, and he desperately needs a platform to respond. Otherwise, he'll just be another loser who once was president. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.